Want to become an AI trailblazer in the product world? Pragmatic Institute's newest workshop, AI for Product Professionals, is your ticket to generative AI mastery. In this hands-on training, learn to master chat GPT and prompt engineering to transform your product strategies, rapidly create content, optimize workflows, and make razor-sharp product decisions fueled by data. Don't just keep up with the AI revolution. Lead it. Seats are limited. Enroll today at pragmaticinstitute.com slash AI workshop. Hello, and welcome to the Pragmatic Product Chat series, where we tackle the biggest challenges facing today's product management, product marketing, and other market and data-driven professionals with some of the best minds in the industry. I'm Rebecca Calagares for Pragmatic Institute and your host for this episode. So one of the things that I think is super true for us is that when we think about product management, when it comes to building or marketing products, you can't do this alone and you can't do this with hostages right? You really need people to work together. And that is why we have with us today, Jenny Martin. She's an agile product development coach, trainer, facilitator, and has a really strong focus on both collaboration and innovation. So welcome, Jenny. We are very excited to have you on board. Thank you for having me. I'm looking forward to it. Excellent. All right. So I always like to start with everybody's sort of origin story, right? If you were to say like, this is why I am where I am and why I am so passionate about what you do. And if anyone's ever followed you on LinkedIn or seen your posts, you can tell that you are really passionate about what you do. Tell us, tell us the origin story of Jenny. Sure. Okay. So Craggy, I graduated about 30 years ago with a degree in psychology and then just fell into tech just had no idea what I was going to do. I landed a job at Perot Systems as a tester. Before I knew it, I was off to a boot camp in Dallas and, and being turned into an engineer. And I just sort of like went with the flow, did lots of consulting, you know. And then 20 years later, I realized I've been uh, leading teams and working all, in all sorts of different roles across tech. But I guess the thing that always motivated me was people and mm. that feeling that you get when everybody's flourishing and reaching their potential and doing awesome stuff. So I was always kind of drawn to that, both in the sort of team leading side of things, but also everything to do with collaboration. So I guess when Agile was first a thing, I was really excited by all the collaborative practices. And I think I just intrinsically knew and valued everybody working together alongside each other their collective intelligence and just the, the things that you can do with that. So for me, it felt like a, a no-brainer. Of course, it's good to get everybody in the room. Um, so I guess I I was particularly drawn to some of the sharp end practices around behavior-driven development, things where you're really removing the silos and handovers between teams. So they're mm. properly, properly working together. And so I did lots of training in that area, um, spoke at lots of conferences, facilitated loads of workshops. And then 10, 12 years ago, I set up my own company focusing on that stuff. And so, yeah, all my training and and facilitation has always been focusing on the collaborative practices of agile development and product development and really finding ways to collaborate more effectively to deliver better outcomes, faster, 
with happier teams. So, yeah, I'm really motivated when you get that sense that everybody's reaching their potential, both the team and the individual, and everyone's got a really good sense of purpose, knows what they're doing, getting stuff done. Well, and I think that, I mean, who doesn't want both better outcomes from a product perspective, but also like (laughs) overall general happiness. And I do think that there's a lot about agile processes that really help with collaboration, but I'm sure this is why people hire you too, right? We've all seen it where process isn't enough. You can't just processize, that's a word, collaboration, right? It really is. There's a layer on top of that. There's a mindset. There are approaches. There are pieces. And I think what you've done in your career is really break down what may feel instinctive to some people and just super confusing to others to how can I really help build this muscle? So let's talk a little bit first about sort of maybe maybe signs in an organization where maybe the collaboration isn't as good as one might think. Yes, I think that that's almost always apparent. So when I work with teams, we quite often, in, in some of my training, I don't know if you know about it, but I'm really passionate about this facilitation method called Lego Serious Play. I don't know if you've heard of it, but it's it's a great way of connecting teams to the subject. And so I often start off some training by getting each individual to build a model that represents some kind of pain in their team. Mm. And it's astonishing how many brick walls you see. Mm. (laughs) So you'll see these metaphors of walls dividing one part of the organization, maybe it's product or engineering, and another part of of the organization, maybe it's the business. And there's a big divide there. The other thing I see is somebody who represents the customer or stakeholder up on a great big pillar with a big broadcasting thing, Mm. crown on. (laughs) (laughs) So that appears just all the time. And so I often get asked, you know, okay, we get that this collaboration is good, but how do I actually make this happen? How do I get the stakeholders properly engaged? How How do I get them in the room? How do I get them to even value collaboration? And I think those are really the hardest things. So yes, things I notice, lack of communication between those both sides of the business, things often going backwards and forwards with lots and lots of iterations of changes or, you know, somebody on high talking about solutions rather than problems, Mm. unhappy teams who feel disempowered. Mm. Yeah. Often a lot of these different things that you observe, well, almost always they come back to collaboration or communication. In my point of view. And so I think it's really important to just take a step back and try and figure out what those opportunities are and what's happening. So first of all, any opportunity I have to play with Legos, anyone who knows me knows I am completely all in. And I love that sort of giving people a part to use their different brain, different part of their brain to express things, right? I think that can open up some creativity and make it seem more playful. So I'm totally in. Anytime we can play, I'm in. And I think those are very common. High walls. It feels like people are telling me what to do or, you know, it feels sort of forced or or one way. So then, I mean, again, the problem, sometimes you, when you think there's a problem in collaborative communication, you may feel like it's this one person, but it it rarely is a one person problem, nor a one person solution. So then once you kind of get them to, to say, hey, these are the problems we're saying, how do you help them break that down? Break down the, the Lego brick wall and break down the sort of, you know, symbolic walls within the organization. So yeah, that, so I was working with a team quite recently and we re- were really digging into what their actual next steps were. I think there's a few things and most of it is about stealth. <laughs> so what I've found in the past, you know, going back years is if you sort of say, 
hey, business, we're going to introduce this brand new way of working. And now you're going <laughs> to now you're going to sign up to six hours a week in a workshop. That's not going to work. So so mm. it's more effective to do it by stealth. And by that, I mean small language changes. Mm. So mm. if engineers and product team members are all asking about what's the outcome of that? What's the reason for that? Tell me the context, you know, asking the five whys. What's, what's the value behind that? How can we break that down? How can we deliver value more early? As you start to embed that language, other parts of the organization start to notice mm. and start to use the language as well. So immediately you can start to orientate relationships towards outcome-based relationships, what good looks like, rather than throwing a set of features over the wall. So that just happens over time. And a lot of the collaborative practices that I try and tool up these folks with are about giving them really specific techniques and methods to help them open up conversations around value and outcomes. And, you know, even if they're disempowered to an extent, the more they do it, the more they start to change Mm. uh, the mindset. The other thing is, yeah, not to announce these techniques. So lovely techniques that I use, Road to Nirvana is an outcome-based planning technique that I use. Impact mapping helps teams stay in the problem space before diving into the solution space, but none of these need to be announced. So I think it's all about giving the people who are having the conversations with stakeholders and the, the product folks and the business, giving them the confidence and the tools to take the pen and steer the conversation hmm. without announcing it. So then what tends to happen is, you know, a couple of weeks later, somebody from that other side of the business will come over and say, hey, one of your team facilitated this session last week and it made a load of sense to us and used our language. Can we do that again? And then, you know, a few weeks later, another, you know, perhaps more suspicious person in the organization, (laughs) shouldn't I have have been involved in that customer profiling workshop? And so again, it sort of spreads through osmosis. I do think that there's another really important point, which I see all the time, which is organizations really suffering from the implementation of a big framework. And mm. they've, gone and, they've gone and taken all of their team members and put them on a safe course or on, you know, on scrum course or some other kind of product management thing. And they've all been given a set of very context-based rules. Mm. And so they've stepped away from, from the basics, which is how do we deliver value early? How do we break down silos? So I think that the other thing is, you know, how do we get more predictable? So the other thing is about trying to embed that mindset so that people feel more confident using all of their experience and all of their common sense mm-hmm. without everyone breaking a rule of scrum or whatever it is that they're using in yes. their teams. I mean, obviously, pragmatic, we're big fans of the pragmatic framework, but we're also very clear that it's a framework, meaning that you are to build around it. You are to bring other pieces in. It is not a firm defined process, right? It is an approach about being problem focused and market focused, but it doesn't mean you can divorce everything else. And it also, I think one of the things that you've you've said kind of through all of these is that it is often the little steps that lead to the big gains Mm -hmm. and that trying to sort of jump ahead to the end and like, and now we're all the way over here. It's not realistic and it's not healthy and you're not going to bring people along. You're just going to jump over them. 
And I think that that's a really good point for a lot of product managers listening who are like, nope, let's just like, we're just drivers. Like we just want to get to the other side and we know, know the answer we think. So let's go. But that sort of piece is, it's going to be a lot more disruptive and you are not collaborating then and evolving as an organization. You are trying to force change, which is, is not going to be as productive. Yeah. And it's about patterns as well. So, you know, the patterns are the things that the principles that we adhere to, the ways that we all find across the planet to sort of overcome these challenges. And a lot of them are very similar. And I think sometimes you need to give teams a little bit of leeway to solve their own problems in pursuit of working together more effectively or getting a broader input into what they're doing. So I think people tend to get that quite quickly. And, and often if they're able to uh, try and experiment with ways of working that work for them, there can be a, a bigger buy-in because they're kind of figuring it out for themselves. I also think when it's sometimes we think of collaboration, and I'm, uh, I'm sure we've all seen this one product manager, they want good collaboration in the execution, right? They really want to work with development in executing their vision, right? There is a, a sense that we all do better when we collaborate down here after I've made all of the decisions, right? And I think one of the things you talk about is collaboration, both in that execution, in with your scrum teams and with the sprints, but also collaboration around vision and strategy, so that there is bringing everyone together all through that process. And if we just try to be like, but now that I've made all the, you know, and done all the other things, now let's collaborate. Yeah. I think is, you know, it's not going to, again, it's not going to fly the same way. And you're not going to get the same amount of innovation if you're just doing it at that point. Yeah. And that's so important. So if we think about high performing teams, they're happy and motivated and reaching their potential. They've got a good sense of purpose. They've got mm -hmm. a sense of mastery in terms of what they're doing, you know, improving and autonomy, right? And those things are really, really important. And you can only, you know, when I go into a team, quite often they're aspiring towards autonomous teams or high-performing teams. You can only get that if those folks on the team have a really good understanding of the problems they're trying to solve. And so that's not just the customer problems, you know, that's mm. the the environment, that's the landscape, the context, the decisions that have been made up until now and why, you know, all of that stuff, they need to have been taken along on the journey. And if teams have that, and then they have the tools and the knowledge and the access to the right people to go and do their job properly, then they're going to make really good decisions. And I think it's about selling that into a team so that they recognize the benefit of people have been brought along along the way. It makes such a big difference. And there's one thing, so just another bit of language that I loved, and we're talking about this thing by osmosis. I watched a, a conference talk by Jeff Patton, who did story mapping a few months ago now. And one of the things he was saying in there was, don't be a waiter. So don't go with your little pen and paper, <laughs> yeah. a list of everything that's needed, be a doctor. Mm. You know, tell me what you need, tell me what hurts tell me where the pain is. And again, that's such an easy analogy for people to understand that you can start to change that mindset. And even, you know, everybody has their own biases. I think there are a lot of people on the business side who don't think that technical people have got good ideas or they don't think that technical people will get the business space. Mm -hmm. And it's, it's often when you see those skills demonstrated in a collaborative session that they start to think, oh, well, maybe I should have brought you along to this other session. 
Right. You have good ideas. I also think sometimes we blame people for not knowing information that we didn't give them. Yeah. That would be our responsibility to get. Like if they don't understand the business and what we're trying to accomplish, you got to look and be like, well, did we tell him? <laughs> right? Did we bring it along or not? Right? And I think it is too often we fall into the trap of we figure out the problem and what we should do and they're going to execute on it as if there's... And again, that is just as we spoke it, that is a big brick wall between yeah. the two. And you yeah. can't expect collaboration on one side if you don't have collaboration on the other. Not at all. No. And... I haven't met any happy teams who are working that way. No. So yeah, it's really important. So one of the things that you taught, I mean, one of the things I think is clear, right? To have a good collaboration and a good team is this idea of psychological safety, right? Mm -hmm. And having an environment where you can challenge, you can fail, you can succeed. And I know that that's something you work with teams on. Talk a little bit about what your goal with that is and sort of some of the approaches that you use with clients. Oh gosh, there's so much in that space. I'm I'm really passionate about this. And I think it's coming back a little bit to the collective intelligence thing. You know, we often hear from only 20% of people in a in a room that they tend to be talking for 80% of the time. It often means that there's so many great ideas that don't get heard. So I mean, that's irrespective of the sort of well-being of the people involved. That's just, that's, <laughs> business stuff, you know, so it makes really, really good business sense to have people be able to contribute, you know, be able to learn, be able to challenge, you know, businesses are going to make good decisions. So how we go about that? There's so many, so many things. One of them I think is about what we just talked about, which is the sense of purpose, making Mm. sure that people feel good about what they're doing and feel that what they're doing aligns to their own personal values. Within collaboration itself, there's all sorts of specific techniques that make sure people get heard and that they can contribute and that slowly grow their sense of psychological safety. Lego series plays, the whole reason why I did my certification on that is for that, is because of that, because it's so inclusive and just levels the playing field free from any politics or ego or undercurrents or anything. It's completely leveling. I think there's all sorts of things that you can do, particularly around, you know, taking responsibility when something goes wrong. Not not because you want to have a culture of blame, but just putting your hand up, being able to say, I mucked up and that there being no negative consequences of that. Mm-hmm. So that's about the shared responsibility of the team. And I used to work with a customer who had, this is my polite version, uh, they used to have a muck up Friday where, <laughs> where at lunchtime, where there would be prizes for muck ups. Um, people, people would talk about, you know, how they mucked up that week and what they learned from it. And everybody, oh, I love that. Everybody who put their hand up would say, I mucked up. And then they'd get a big round of applause. And it was just over lunch and, you know, some sandwiches at the end of the week. And I just, yeah, I just absolutely loved that. That's what we know about teams who report low failures and low muck-ups is that they have low psychological safety because they're just not reporting them. Right. Right. So so there's the sort of fostering experimentation and mucking up. I think that there's some really human things about as a leader, showing vulnerability, Mm. compassion. You know, I'm really fascinated by the human brain. And at the moment I'm studying the psychology of kindness and well-being in the workplace. So, you know, there's 
a huge part of our well-being is feeling valued and understood and heard and safe. And mm. so creating psychological safety, it's often about removing those hazards. So interventions that I take with customers, I've been doing much more of this recently, things like exploring nonviolent communication, things like exploring strengths. So understanding mm. individual strengths, which comes from positive psychology. So we're mm-hmm. much more likely to become awesome in the direction of our strengths. You know, in terms of things that are are our dark sides, our shadow strengths, we're probably never going to be very good at those. We might want to manage them, be aware of them, make sure they don't get fired, you know, make sure they don't upset people. But really, if we understand our strengths and we're playing to those strengths, then we're going to feel really motivated and the team will benefit from that. So yeah, those are all the things that I work with teams on, team strengths, communication, nonviolent communication, understanding each other, and just showing up as yourself. I think one of the things that I think is one benefit from lockdown and the pandemic is that sort of disarming Hmm. effect it had on people. So, you know, the kids bowling in through the door or Amazon delivery or, (laughs) you know, something unexpected happening or, you know, I think that that's a good thing to split that divide between home and work. Yeah. It humanized people. Yeah. I think the strength one is so interesting to me because it sounds so obvious, but focus on your strengths. We take our strengths for granted so easily. I see that. I was just talking to my kiddo about this, right? Like she can tell you all the things she's not good at. Mm-hmm. And then you're like, well, let's talk about the things you are good. First, there's like that hemming and hanga, you know, it's the embarrassed, it's there. But then they don't realize, I don't think any of us realize that other people aren't necessarily good at those, mm-hmm. right? I'm, I use the classics of my mom. My mom was like just a creative brain. And she just thought when she would do brainstorming and other people didn't like participate at first, she's just like, well, they just, they just don't want to share their ideas. Like they don't, they don't like me. Yeah. And, and like, it took her a while to realize, oh, maybe their brain doesn't work that way. And they don't have that kind of thing, right? Like you just take for granted what you do have. Mm-hmm. And when you can talk about those and when other people point them out and talk about them overtly, it makes it, you, you know, then what you're not good at also doesn't become as overwhelming, right? There's a balance. You can feel the balance in the space. And I think that that's a, a really powerful place. And again, it sounds so like, you know, a lot of this stuff, it's easy to be like, well, that sounds nice. But it makes a difference. And it doesn't just make a difference in how you feel. It makes a difference in the outcomes and the success of our products and our company. Yeah, it really, really does. And I think that the really impactful part of this exploration of strengths is when you realize that the things that you're not good at are the polar opposites of the things that you are good at. Mm. And so, you know, you might notice, so I'm a very, very trusting person, which is good in loads of ways. I'm also a very big picture thinker. Mm-hmm. So my blind spots could be detail and they could also be being taken advantage of. Mm. Yeah. So I'm naturally not very good at negotiating, right? Because I'm likely to miss details in the contract and I'm likely to just say, oh, well, you seem nice. <laughs> you seem nice. So that'll probably be fine. You know, that's mm-hmm. the tendency. So I'm there having my 360 review and my manager's saying, you know, you're no good at negotiating. We're going to send you on a negotiating course. <sighs> you know, I'm never going to be good at that because that's deeply rooted in, in who I am. So why not? give that contract to somebody else who is detail-oriented, who loves the negotiation, who sits with a red pen, thrilled by finding the inconsistency. (laughs) 
So what might be a blind spot in me is a strength in somebody else. And you notice that that affects how you interact with each other. So rather than perceiving, you know, and your moral outlook is very much based on how you are. So that thing on its own is responsible for loads of disconnects within teams in terms of ways of working, approach, communication. And so, yeah, I've been working with strengths-based stuff for quite a few years. About 10 or so years ago, I was using the Gallup Clifton Strengths Finder. Mm. And then more recently, these strong suits, oh, strong suits cards. So if you Google strong suits, you can find this. Play to your strengths. These, there's 52 cards all representing a strength. And you can just mm-hmm. whip them out and play games. And so you don't even need any. Again, it's stealthy. This is my thing. Right. They don't necessarily realize they're, yeah. They don't need to. Yeah. It's just whip those cards out. And, and it's a game. game. Yeah. And, and you can suddenly, suddenly everybody's understanding each other better. Right. Well, and I think another thing, this is like from a management perspective, sometimes we feel like we can't move tasks between roles, right? Mm-hmm. No, this pers- that role should do this. Mm-hmm. Yes, but that individual is maybe, again, it's not in their strength and it is in this strength. What can we move? I think a good manager has flexibility that way. You know, you understand that you're not moving everything from one person to another. That would just be a problem. But, but that there are specific pieces that you can and should use the strengths you have in your team in various places. Yeah. And it comes back to that, the collaboration and diversity, you know, it comes all the way back full circle. If you want to get the most out of some collaborative activity, you want to have representation from people with different strengths. And so if you know that you've got somebody on your team who's like futuristic and creative and able to ideate really well, it doesn't matter if they work in finance you know, bring them along to the workshop. So yeah, there's, there's loads of situations where that can be useful. So I do want to touch a little bit on what you mentioned, that you are currently studying the psychology of kindness and well-being. When I was looking at some of your, your posts and some of your thought leadership, and I thought, well, okay, first that just like made me feel good. Mm-hmm. And I think that sometimes people forget that kindness does have a place in the workspace right? It is not a separate thing. It's not something you, you do like when you're not at work. But I would love a little bit about what made you study this? How are you studying it? Like, what are you finding? What are you hoping to learn? I find this just super interesting. So yeah, I think, well, it's coming back to my psychology roots, but I've, I've been doing a few talks recently, the last couple of years on, on nonviolent communication and strengths and compassion and things like that, mostly at tech conferences, who are really interested you know, the mm-hmm. tech community is super progressive and interested, which is always, you know, really refreshing. But I've just been realizing as I've been getting older, how, you know, I, I want to give everybody the benefit of the doubt. I believe that we're not born bad. We're normally navigating our world with our own genetics and experience, and we're all trying to do our best. And I just see huge opportunity in people understanding each other better. And so kindness is interesting because I think recently some organizations are talking about kind as part of their company values. I was at a conference last week where Martin Florian, who's the lead product director for Spotify, was keynoting, talking about how don't be nice, be kind. He was talking about vulnerability Mm. and leadership. He was talking about all sorts of things which touched on kindness. So yeah, kindness is complicated because it's broken down into lots of different things. It's actually not very well understood as a thing because it's a construct, you know, sitting in there, there's empathy and compassion, 
and other pro-social behavior like being polite or doing acts of kindness for somebody else. Mm. You know, it's, it's actually composed of lots of different things. Some of it in there, particularly compassion, which is like a subset of pro-social behavior, is definitely shown to improve performance and engagement in the workplace. So it's not just, not just fluffy. And I've always known that. I've right. always known that yep. instinctively. It's just that when I was younger and had my first team, I was looked on quite suspiciously for it. Maybe it was because it was 20 years ago. Maybe it was because I was a woman in tech. I don't know. But having a sense of compassion, being understood, helps with our psychological well-being. When our psychological needs are being met, then we're going to perform more better at work. We're going to be happier at home. And so all these things kind of come into play. And then the other thing is, Kindness makes you feel good. Kindness is actually good for you. Mm. So being kind lowers your blood pressure. It produces this love hormone called oxytocin. It helps your cardio, whole cardiovascular system. When you do an act of kindness, it tends to manifest. So it makes improve somebody else's mood and they might be kind. So that's mm-hmm. a and spreading effect. If you look at it from a physiological point of view, it's the opposite of stress. Yeah. It's the opposite of it. Physiologically, when you're kind or compassionate, you're, you're in a state which is the opposite of stress. And also, the more you do it, because of the neuroplasticity in your brain, can I say that word? You actually work your kindness muscle and you get better at it and you get less oh. stressed. So there's loads of reasons to be kind. And I just think we're in a movement now, which is, you know, 20 years ago, it was leave your feelings at the door, don't be mm. vulnerable you know, stick and carrot. It's been shown for years that neither the stick or the carrot work. It's much more about our intrinsic motivation. And yeah, compassion and kindness are part of that. So yeah, I'm thrilled. I was thrilled at the conference last week to hear, you know, people like Marcin talking about kindness. And then in my posts and stuff that I've been writing, it's been really interesting getting everybody's feedback. So yeah, the kindness revolution. But I love it because I'm with you, like instinctively, you know, this is going to give you a better team and an outcome, but it is hard to explain it to others. And it is definitely a hundred percent in my career. There are times it has been seen as, well, that's just Rebecca. She does that, but mm-hmm. it's, oh, and I get a, it's okay because her team succeeds. It is never, not never, but it was often not thought of as one of the reasons the yeah. team succeeds. It was like, we let her get away with being kind because you know, there isn't a, a downfall. And I think studying it to be able to measure it is super interesting. Yeah. And ever since you said kindness versus being nice, I like my gut says they're different. But if someone was like, explain and define how they're different, that would be hard. Yeah. And actually, Marcin did it beautifully in his talk last week. So, so being nice is you know, the thing that you're trying to do to make that other person feel better, but it might mean that you're avoiding telling them the truth or doing something that actually is going to benefit them in the long run. So being kind can be hard. Hmm. You know, being hmm. kind might not, not be good for you as the person being kind. It's much more complex than that. So, so yeah, that was the difference um, mm-hmm. that he used, which I quite liked. And you can tell not only when you're kind, does it de-stress you, but you can feel the other person. Like, like if, if someone, you know, if you've got a teammate or, or someone who comes to you with something, you can tell they're stressed about this. Yeah. And when you reflect back kindness, you can see their wall slip. And once you do that once, that again, it doesn't have to get to that same point. 
yeah. the next time. And yeah, for me, it's about, so it's not just about the acts of kindness. So in my LinkedIn post, some of the folks replying were kind of talking about what kindness was to them. And there was some mm. stuff in there saying, you know, it's giving somebody the benefit of the doubt. It's mm. assuming that they have good intent. It's seeking to understand them before seeking to be understood. And I believe those, all of mm. those things. That's, that's smart. Yep. Yeah. And those are the sorts of things which feed really closely into ways of working and team values so that, so that you can get this really great, highly performing team that feels safe. And all of those things come down to being kind to each other. So one of the things I saw in your post, and so it's okay if you don't have an answer to this yet, or this is part of your study, but one of the things you asked is, how would you measure kindness in your workplace? And I was like, oh, that's a good question. Mm-hmm. I know this is part of what you're studying. <laughs> do you have do you have thoughts on that? Do you have suggestions? I mean, it's also, I would encourage people to think about the question and then go on to LinkedIn on Jenny Martin's post and like give her your thoughts. Because I think it's a fascinating question. Yeah, so there's one of the things we're looking at is quite a new kindness measure, which is from a, a paper which was written in 2021 by I think Young's uh, Young Out. And it's kind of breaking kindness down into those different elements. Mm. So, you know, there's those elements which are about you giving an act of kindness. Some of those things might come naturally to you based on on your kind of values. Some of them might be more to do with what you've learned through politeness. And then there's the other the other things about things that you might do that cause yourself suffering, but relieve suffering from somebody else. And other, other items about the more sort of compassionate side of things, trying to understand somebody else. And so this scale, I think it's called the kindness questionnaire. It's as simple as that breaks those different things down. I think it's got 40 questions and you can go, you can go and take them. I think interestingly, even though it's obviously there's, it's prone to weakness around people measuring themselves because it's just a questionnaire. But interestingly, people are ready to say they're not very kind hmm. by filling in the questionnaire. So there's, there's that one. There's one that gets a bit earlier than that. I think it's about 2019, which is by Carter, which is a different kindness scale. And again, broken down into those different types of kindness. So it's very, very early very early in terms of measures. But then there's also the, the different sorts of things you can do in terms of more qualitative stuff, like just asking, what does kindness mean to you? And gathering that sort of data and using mm-hmm. that to start a conversation. I'm thinking now about my assignment. <laughs> right. Help her with her assignments. <laughs> but I do, I think it is an undervalued aspect of what makes a productive workplace. And again, it's I think far too easy to put it as a nice to have, or if everything else is going well, we can work on kindness, right? Once we make enough money, once we hit our markets, right? Versus again, this is a way that unlocks those, right? If everyone's showing kindness, the ability to do collaboration, the trust people have, a lot of that just happens. And again, as you said, there's also like, it's good for the giver and the, and the, and the receiver. So yes. It is. And yeah, it is hard to measure. I think that one of the problems is since, you know, since organizations have been focusing more on, on well-being and employing employee well-being and they've got well-being managers and things like that, there can be a superficialness to that. Mm. You know, you can be, have the, the fruit on the table and the, the regular in-chair massages and the, the pizza, you know, when everyone's working 60 hours a week or whatever it is, it can be you know, superficial, whereby there's still toxic leadership or there's still 
you know, there's still a lack of autonomy or whatever it is that's going on. And so, yeah, these things, I think if we are able to measure them well and have good conversations about them, they're going to be, they're going to open up opportunities to make more of a difference than, you know, just providing somebody with a voucher to go to the cinema. Um, mm-hmm. So yeah, wrestling with it is going to be fun. I also think one of the challenges that can come with it is that kindness to some extent is more individualized, right? So you often have the, what you did, you know, the, the questions of what, when I put out the fruit, everybody could have fruit, but true kindness to showing kindness to Jenny versus showing kindness to Rebecca versus show, it can look very different. Right. Mm-hmm. And then that can add to the, the sort of stress of the organization being like, well, is it equitable? Is it fair? Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's going to be a challenge too. Sure. All right, Jen, we really talked about lots of different things today from Legos and games and collaboration and innovation to, to kindness. If you could get our listeners to do two things differently tomorrow based on what we talked about today, what would that be? In terms of kindness or in terms of collaboration or both? Anything, anything that we talked about or just anything. What would, what would make the biggest impact, do you think? Okay, so I'll give one for each. I think on the collaboration side of things, just to have that question, could I work with somebody else on this? Mm. Could I work with somebody else on this or would there be a benefit in me working with somebody else on this? It's just a question to ask. On the kindness and compassion, I think listening is a really important thing. Mm. So just try and put down the need to speak and properly listen. And while you're listening, don't be trying to come up with the advice or the answer or the what, you know, what happened to me in that situation, but mm. to, to properly listen. Because I think once we start to listen properly, you can then start to hear what people need. And that's a great first step. Excellent advice, Jenny. All right. This was delightful. I have enjoyed talking with you. I enjoy following you. If our listeners want to learn more and follow you, where would you have them go? I'd have them go to LinkedIn, probably. Yeah. that From there, you can find my website, which is thecollaborationcoach.net and my YouTube channel, which is The, the Collaboration Coach. Um, but LinkedIn would give you more of a feel. That would give you all my posts and everything. Yeah. So Jenny Martin. The one, the picture with hiding behind the Lego bricks. Yes. You can always find the Lego bricks. All right, Jenny, thank you so much for coming on today. You're welcome. Thank you very much for having me. All right. That does it for today's episode. Thank you everyone for listening. And don't forget to join us next week when we tackle another great topic designed to help you elevate your product, your company, and your career. <laughs>